Welcome to Masterclass, a collaboration between the virtual world diplomacy community and Brotherboard's Diplomacy Dojo. The host for this week's Masterclass is the one and only Brotherboard. This is different than last week in the last Masterclass. I'd prepared a pretty thorough outline of stuff that I thought I should cover for this topic, which is outguessing your opponent. I have not prepared an outline. I'm hoping that'll be interesting to do a different format uh, and see what if the result is a good one. It's experimental. So normally when I host the Diplomacy Dojo podcast, I just take inventory of what everybody wants to talk about that day and then make an outline on the spot of what the program will be about. And this is maybe halfway between these two concepts where we have a prepared topic in mind or we, we want to talk about outcasting your opponent, but I don't have specific points that I intend to cover in order. So if there's anything at the outset uh, that comes to mind that someone would like to talk about or a story someone would like to share or a question, anything like that, have at it and uh, interrupt at any time. It's no problem. Uh, this is less formal. So I guess just as a, a structural question, I'd like to know what type of different guesses there are. Often we just reduce them all down to 50-50 guesses. I would say that's generally not the case. Usually the odds aren't exactly 50-50. So are there true 50-50 guesses and what other types of guesses are there? That's a great way to initiate the topic. In my personal philosophy of approaching games or maybe life in general i think it is really important uh, this is this is a belief that i have to be very precise in the words that you use to describe the situations you encounter and the thoughts that you have because i think that imprecision in choice of words leads to imprecise thought because uh, human beings we think in words most of the time and mistakes in how our words correspond to actual things, how the words correspond to reality, what we call semantics. Mistakes in semantics can lead to sloppy conclusions. A specific application of this is when in diplomacy there's a, a choice that you have. Let's say a choice between two moves uh, and your opponent has the ability to counter either of those two moves if they guess correctly and you have the ability to not be countered if you guess correctly. And some people will call that, quote-unquote, a 50-50 guess. And that is usually far from accurate because the incentives and payoff and the likelihood of how the players will behave is not anything resembling a 50-50 chance like a coin flip. And thinking about it in this way can do a disservice to yourself in that either you will not correctly outguess your opponent as often as you could, or you will make a form of guessing that doesn't really accord with how the payoffs work. So, for example, let's say that I have a choice between two guesses, and we'll just assume that outcome A is twice as good as outcome B. For me, that's my belief. If I can get A to work, that'll be twice as good if I was right than if I guessed B and that was right. But if I guess, if my opponent counters me, my moves fail. So the failed outcomes are all the same. So if I guess A and I'm right, I get, uh, let's say, two 
value. You know, I'm just making up some arbitrary value. And if I'm wrong, I get zero. And if I guess B and I'm right, I get one value. And if I'm wrong, I get zero. So a very basic game theory concept in this situation might say I should probably play A two-thirds of the time and B one-third of the time. And if I was just going to randomize my moves, like actually use a random number generator app or roll a die because I'm so afraid of my opponent guessing correctly what I'm going to do, like, uh-oh, so-and-so is totally in my head. They, they, they know they, they can read me like a book. Oh, my God. Uh, if, I, if, I, if I make a, a deliberate choice here, they'll somehow guess it. I just know they will. So I'm going to roll a die. Okay, well, if that were the case and that was really the value, I should do something like assign 1 and 2 to be I'm going to do move B and 3, 4, 5, and 6 to be I'm going to do move A because it's not really a 50-50 guess because the values of the two outcome are, are so disparate. And in diplomacy... In your typical diplomacy game, assigning the relative value of the different outcomes is actually quite challenging. To a degree, it's almost always subjective in that the value of the different outcomes doesn't just come from the board. It comes from your intentions of how you play the game and, and even like how everyone is thinking. It's very, very contextual. Like, for example, what is the value of looking like I don't know what I'm doing so that other players will underestimate me. That's something that's extremely difficult to place a number value on, or even if you did, that'd be quite arbitrary. I'm saying that taking a choice between two things and calling it a 50-50 and flipping a coin to decide which thing you would do if you're, if you're desperate is quite foolish. It would be an improvement, a vast improvement, to assign an appropriate relative value to you of the different outcomes. If you're not even going to try to guess, right? You're going to do the, do the thing of you randomize your numbers. I call those guesses zigzag guesses when there are two choices. There is choice zig and choice zag. In diplomacy, there are many, many situations in which you must make a choice between zig and zag. Do I support hold Belgium or do I support hold North Sea? I can only support hold one of them, and if my opponent attacks the right one, they get through. So one of these is zig and one of these is zag. It's not a 50-50 guess. You asked a couple more questions beyond that, but uh, as far as this goes, uh, does that make sense what I'm saying? Are you able to follow this line of thinking? Yeah, yeah, so I'm following what you're saying. Uh, it looks like Chris Kelly's not muted. He may have a question now. Right. Yeah, please. Let me start off with putting it in the specific context of the moves you just mentioned. You could support Belgium or you could support Brest or whatever the other example was. I mean, I love the zigzag metaphor, but um, if the opponent has the units to take one of the two and you simply have to guess right, how is that specific choice not a 50-50? What's, what's an example of what would make that not a 50-50 choice? Okay, sure. So let's say that I am France and I can defend Brest or Belgium. I can only defend one. Don't worry about, like, tactically how the heck that might exist. Let's just assume that that makes sense. Uh, I can only defend one of them. Most of the time, I'd probably be a lot more willing to cough up Belgium than to cough up Brest because Belgium is not a home center. It's easy to regain later on. It can even lead to a falling out between enemies if they start squabbling over territory or they're tripping over each other and getting their pieces in. And I might be a little more willing to relinquish Belgium most of the time. 
But on the other hand, let's say that I have a suspicion, you know, maybe I'm fighting England and Germany. I have a suspicion that if I simply lose breast, the English player will lose interest in attacking me. I think that I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not certain, but I, I have a hunch, you know, if I just, if I lost breast, I bet you the English player would get more, more nervous about Germany or Russia and then we could, maybe, maybe they would change sides. So some of the time I might say, you know what? The value here is really in defending Brest because Belgium is expendable. Maybe I'm even completely certain. You know what? I'm just going to give up Belgium. I, it's, maybe it even benefits me if I lose Belgium here, ironically, and vice versa. In a certain context, I might say, you know what? I need to show the German player that there is just there is nothing to be gained fighting me. And if the English player maybe will give up if I if I cede Brest here, so I'm going to defend Belgium and let Brest go. And you know maybe I end up with both. You know maybe maybe I quote unquote guess, uh, but I'm not I'm not really outguessing my opponent. I'm making a deliberate decision that there's one that I want, and there's another one that I'm going to cough up. But whether I want Belgium or Brest is totally contextual to the game that I'm in. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in many situations, uh, it's not so much that I am guessing what my opponents are going to do, but making a value judgment as to where, what move I need to succeed or what, what outcome I want to see. But other times, um, let's just say I'm at war, and uh, I, I'm, I'm Austria, and I'm fighting Turkey and Russia, and there's some, there's some kind of arrangement of pieces where they can defend Bulgaria or Romania, but not both. And I, I have to decide which to attack. I could attack Bulgaria or I could attack Romania. And they can defend one but not both. This is not a 50-50 guess. Unless I am convinced that my opponents have agreed to just flip a coin about which of the two centers they're going to support and honor the result of that coin flip, it's not a 50-50 guess. Russia and Turkey are having a conversation. They're making a negotiation and they're making a decision about whether they're going to defend Romania or they're going to defend Bulgaria because they have to reach an agreement in order to, for their defense to work. And so, by the way, if my opponents are literally flipping a coin to make their decision, then it does not matter what I do because I can't possibly predict that. It's By definition, it is unpredictable, so it, it, it doesn't matter what I do. I don't need to flip a coin. My decision can be completely arbitrary. It does not matter. But assuming my opponents are not flipping a coin, which is, by the way, I'm going to say this in passing. The idea of coin flipping or like randomly generating numbers comes up all the time in these conversations. And in practice, I almost never see that happen in diplomacy. It's extremely rare. People don't do that. They make a decision based on what they think is the right move for them. At a very, very, very extreme situations, once in a while, somebody actually does use some kind of random number generator. I have learned. I used to think that nobody did that, um, but I have learned that there are a few players out there who will try to do that once in a while, like in online diplomacy where they might have time to do that. I'll get back to that maybe later in this conversation. But let's just say that they're not. Russia and Turkey have made a decision. So when I am Austria and I'm thinking, okay, I can attack Bulgaria or I can attack Romania, and Russia and Turkey have decided to defend one of these, which one did they decide? It's not to my advantage to just flip a coin here and guess whether to attack Bulgaria or Romania because if I can somehow figure out how those two jokers think or how they're negotiating... Go ahead. No, I'm just laughing, but I I do agree that 
Oh, I, I want to help like articulate some of the theories you're talking about here where what makes a, a guess not 50-50 is how well does it play strategically if you lose one center versus another or gain a position versus another? How easy is it for you to retake a certain position or center? And what you were just getting into is what are the two people opposed to me most likely to agree on? That's right. I think that is worth accounting for. That it's not a 50-50 guess, number one, because Bulgaria and Romania do not have equal value. They just do not. No supply centers, no positions on the diplomacy board have inherently equal value unless you're in like a very extreme endgame situation where you're just either trying to solo or form a stalemate line and, it, and this, the centers no longer matter anymore. But at every point in the match before the very last few turns before a stalemate line is going to be formed, every point in the match before that, the centers do not have equal value because they're all positions on the board. And uh, this is something that's part of, a, like a, I guess, a larger teaching that I have about diplomacy that when I'm trying to help people be better, I say that, that all supply centers are not created equal because they are also positions on the board. So even though your score is affected by your supply centers, and if you have some kind of scoring system, or even though you, your, your count of centers goes up and it gives you, uh, you know, another build or whatever, that matters. That's part of the value. But it is not the sole value. You wouldn't say that something like England having North Atlantic Ocean is the same as England being in Ionian Sea. You would say, no, that's crazy. Of course, England being in Ionian Sea, that's a big deal. That's a really distant and useful position from which England can cause all kinds of chaos or maybe even solo win later. North Atlantic Ocean, I mean, England can just chill out there at any time. That's not, that's not very valuable. Right, right, right. That's what I'm saying. So those are territories. The territories obviously have wildly different value and it also differs depending on your power. If you were Italy and you had Ionian Sea, we say, well, that's not, well, I mean, you just get that for free, basically. You just go in there and it's not a big deal. If Italy's in North Atlantic Ocean, you go, ha ha, ooh boy, you know, that unit's going to matter a lot uh, later in the game that Italy got that fleet out in there. Right, right, right. That makes sense. But the same thing is going on with the supply centers, that the supply centers are also territories at the same time. And so their value is really different. And I think sometimes it helps to put a number on it, like how valuable is Greece to Turkey? I don't know. Let's call that a one. Let's say it's worth one. You know, it's just right there. You get it. It's worth one. Okay. How valuable is Marseille? As Turkey, what would you cough up to get Marseille? What would you risk? Marseille is worth far, far more to Turkey than Greece because with Marseille, you could win. Marseille is worth like five times at least, <laughs> maybe more, and it depends on the particulars of the match. The value of the centers is in flux at all times because the players are moving around the board and who's likely to win or not is changing and there are things that are unexpected stuff happens and, and so on. So the value of the centers to you is all the time in flux. There's not a hard number. I may have said like, uh, you know, abstractly, it's kind of, I'm thinking Marseille is worth five times as much as Greece. But there are times it will be worth less and times that it would be worth more. It just depends on how the tactics of the game are playing out. I, I'm giving that not as a hard rule, but rather to illustrate a method of thought that the centers are not worth the same. Not only are they not worth the same to you, they're not worth the same to you as they are to another player. So something like Vienna is worth something different to England as to Germany or compared to Turkey or Russia. They would value having their army in Vienna differently, just inherently based on the kind of power they are, but also like the context of how the match is playing out. 
So when evaluating a choice, not even don't even think about it as a guess for a moment, just a choice between two supply centers, that's not a 50-50 choice. That's not an equal choice. No two centers are created equal. They are always worth something different. And sometimes one is worth much more to you than the other. And you got to think like that. And if you're just thinking of, well, one center is as good as the other. I just want to, I just want to increase my, my centers. Okay, well, you're not, this is masterclass, my friend. We're not here to talk about how like diplomacy 101 successfully play a game of diplomacy, learn the rules and play it for the first time. We're talking about how to become really, really good at diplomacy, uh, not just able to play it, but like an expert. And if you want to be an expert at diplomacy, you got to start thinking this way, that these centers are all worth something totally different. It's different for each power, and it's different for each moment of the game as the game progresses. So when I'm Austria and trying to think about whether I want to go for Bulgaria or Romania, not only am I trying to outthink my opponent, I'm also asking myself, which of these do I really need? And what will happen if I capture them? So now, not just going into the value of this center, like maybe as Austria, there's an argument to be said that maybe Romania is the more valuable of the two because with Romania, it wouldn't be that hard to capture Bulgaria subsequently or something like that. There's, there's arguments just in terms of the tactical value, which is better for Austria to have. But there's also the diplomatic consideration. What will happen to these players? What will happen to their alliance? What are they likely to do? If I capture or don't capture one of these centers, that's got to be a factor in how I'm valuing this choice because it's not just about what capturing the center means to me. It's about the totality of the psychological implications of making this move. And you're playing diplomacy. you got to be thinking like this. This is a phenomenon that I call psychological billiards. You ever played a game of billiards, you know, or you've even seen a game of billiards. There's all these little balls rolling around on the table. And they bounce around and, and they hit each other. And there's like these, this whole chain reaction of things hitting each other. And if you're really good at billiards, you can foresee in your mind how the things are going to hit each other and cause a bunch of stuff to happen. Like, hey, I'm not just trying to hit, you know, the six ball into the corner pocket. I'm also trying to cause the cue ball to end up in this spot after I'm done hitting it there because that'll block the other player from being able to do the move that they want to do. And there's all, there's all this crazy stuff that goes on. Billiards is a really... Really interesting game, uh, and then not the point of this conversation, but the metaphor here, a psychological billiards, is that there's consequences to everything that you do in the diplomacy game, that the other players are watching your moves. They're watching what you do, and they're learning about you, or they're thinking about you, and they're wondering about the consequences and implications of the things, trying to figure out whether they need to change sides or not, or all sorts of stuff is going on in their minds. And you can anticipate this, of course, like in general, you can anticipate how a diplomacy player might think, but also you can anticipate how particular people will think as you get to know them from playing the match or whatever the case may be. So that has got to be a part of your valuation as well. Now, that's extremely difficult to reduce to a number, <laughs> all, all possible things that you could be considering, uh, which is why in practice, I never do that. I don't reduce these things to a number. I just try to get an overall feeling because I think the exercise of putting the numbers maybe more work than than it's worth and could even be misleading. But getting to the the real, the, the meat of the topic, the topic at hand of outguessing your opponent, the thing is attacking Romania and succeeding is worth more to me than attacking Bulgaria and failing. And attacking Bulgaria and succeeding is worth much more to me than attacking Romania and failing. If I am confident that successfully capturing the center is worth a lot more than the failing move, then I 
then I just want to guess right. If I've made that decision, like, okay, if I guess right, that's a great outcome. That's what I want to do. So my number one consideration is guessing what my opponents will do so that I can take a center off of them. Then a lot of that valuation stuff of my own personal subjective valuation of those centers, that might go out the window. And instead, I'm thinking about my opponents. What do they value? What is in their minds? What, okay, you know, is this the kind of Turkish player who considers Bulgaria to be expendable? I do. When I play as Turkey, I consider Bulgaria to be expendable when I'm on the back foot. I'll sometimes even cough it up to Austria on purpose just to make Austria look big uh, and scary and maybe somebody will change sides. If that is my take on the Turk, like, "Mm, I think this is a Turkish player who probably is not going to bargain very hard or value Bulgaria highly. I want to go for Bulgaria. I'll make that decision. I say I'm going to go for Bulgaria because I think that's the most likely to work. Alternatively, if I've gotten the impression that this Turkish player is like very selfish or like particularly greedy or something like that, and the Russian player is just maybe kind of phoning it in or is even um, seems to be like a puppet of the Turkish player, I might think, you know, I bet you the Turkish player is just going to convince the Russian player to defend Bulgaria for them. And maybe Romania is going to be the weak point and I'm going to go for that. And uh, I've given examples. These are, these are just hypothetical examples. But you could be taking into account anything, anything at all in the psychology of the players to try to figure out what decision they've made. Or, you know, you could even try to scout it out. You know, sometimes you can get that kind of information through the grapevine. Russia and Turkey aren't going to tell you, but you might get a hint from somebody else that they're in a close relationship with. Maybe in this particular instance, it doesn't seem likely that Turkey or Russia would reveal how they're trying to defend against Austria. So maybe this isn't the best example. But like in general, in diplomacy, you can sometimes figure things out because like logically, okay, if the German is saying that the Russian promised that Galicia was going to do this, then logically Galicia can't be support holding Romania. And I think Russia would tell the truth to the German and the German would tell the truth to me also, I think. So if I know that Galicia is not going to be doing it, then Romania is the one that's the weak point. And lo and behold, uh, I was right. And the Russian players astounded, like, how did you, you know, how did you, how did this happen? How did they, how did the Austrian guess correctly that Romania was the weak point? And uh, the answer is, you know, some, some tidbit of information I got from the German allowed me to logically infer the rest of your whole tactical plan. I wouldn't say that to the Russian, but I'm thinking that to myself, <laughs> you just don't know, man, you know, the fact that, and the German may not even realize that that's what happened. I talked at a big clip here, so I might have generated questions or comments uh i'll take a, a breather for a second i do actually I, I have two things i want to say and the first one that applies to, i mean you just you know did a great job of outlining all the different factors that go into deciding what's the most advantageous guess since this is a master class to what extent does reverse psychology enter into this where they say oh i know brother board is clever and he know what he values and he's going to go for this so that's what i'm going to stop this is i'll say the one thing that has caused me to flip a coin is to get out of that the loop of reverse psychology. So let me t- ask you what, how you deal with that. Okay, that's a great question. And this may be the time to deploy a technique that I have adopted from my experiences playing uh, video games and some other games that I think is applicable to diplomacy. And I've been slowly, slowly trying to articulate. Uh, I haven't written about this on my blog before because I've just been so challenged to reduce it to words, but I did talk about it on uh, 
Florida Man's YouTube show. So in the fighting video game community, or like sometimes you call them tournament fighters, there's actually a lot of similarity between tournament fighting games and diplomacy. And the, the similarity is the skill of Yomi. Yomi is a Japanese word used in uh, sometimes in the fighting game community to refer to the skill of reading your opponent's mind. Because in a fighting video game, if you've ever seen these things, the players are entering their moves very quickly, right? Sometimes it seems like they're just mashing buttons or something at some crazy speed. If you slow things down enough to understand what is happening, what you would know is that in a fighting video game, the players are entering their moves simultaneously. Just like diplomacy. In diplomacy, I choose my moves and I enter them down and then you write your moves and you enter them down and then we find out who guessed correctly because we entered them at the same time. And so in practice, in a fighting video game, the players are also doing this. So like, let's say I make my punch. I, I, you know, I press this button, that's the punch button. If you are to block my punch, you need to already be pressing the block button at the time that I hit the punch button. So if you want to block my punch, you have to anticipate that I'm going to punch and press the block button. That's really how it works most of the time in these games. The players are not, they're reacting to what each other is doing, um, but in an overall way, not on a not on a second-by-second second basis. They're actually doing things at the same time. I'll make another comparison to this phenomenon. In my youth, I played quite a lot of real-time strategy games uh, like StarCraft and WarCraft. This, If you've played one of those games before, then this comparison may help. In games like that, there's often a fog of war. That means that you are choosing some of your moves in a vacuum, that you, you don't have perfect information about what units your opponent is building or what they have or where they're located. You have some knowledge, but you don't have perfect knowledge, but you still have to make your decisions. So let's say, for instance, that I don't know exactly what you're building, but I have a hunch, and I'm like, you know what? That guy, he's building. I just know what he's going to He's teching up to the air units. I just know it. Something tells me that's what you're going to do. So in anticipation of you building those air units, I start building a bunch of anti-air units. And so when you come over with your big air force or whatever to attack me, and ah, I've already built these anti-air units in anticipation of this, and I, I crush your air force and then go on to win the game or whatever. That kind of yomi, anticipating your opponent's actions while you're doing things at the same time, also is taking place in uh, those kinds of games. And if you've watched people play real-time strategy games, it also seems like they're just hitting buttons so fast. You know, how could I possibly do it? Like, yeah, that's part of it. I mean, it's definitely very different from a board game. But just bear in mind that a certain degree of what they're doing is just guessing what the other player is doing because these things are happening at the same time. And so it may look as though they are reacting to what their opponent is doing. And they are to a degree, but not on a strategic level. But to a certain degree, they're just they're just guessing correctly and, it, and they're, they're pummeling the other player. And so diplomacy has a similar skill, the same skill, the skill of Yomi. That is anticipating what your opponent is going to do. And it's actually, in my opinion, a little more straightforward and easy to understand in the context of a board game like Diplomacy because of the slow pace, right? We're, we're just, you got a couple minutes to think up your moves or, or if you're playing online, maybe a whole day to think about your moves and, and you know, write them down and then see what happens. And you have time to think about what your opponent's doing, what they're likely to do, their tendencies and so on. It's the Yomi skill. 
I'm using these, this background to explain where my thought process comes from and, and how my ideas work, uh, but I, I plan to get more specific as we continue. So in trying to specifically figure out how the opponent is thinking, I think that it helps in diplomacy to figure out reasonable moves that your opponent may attempt to to think about them or if you have if you have the time let's say you're i play mostly online diplomacy so i do i I do think about using time as a resource here to figure things out i I realize that in like a fast-paced game you're gonna have to go by instinct a little more and that's all right but just for the sake of explaining this exercise to think through the moves that my opponent would want to make and assign a yomi level to that move set and here's what I mean. Yomi level zero are the moves that the player will make if they're making no attempt to anticipate or counter the precise moves of another player. I'll give an example. In your opening moves as, let's say, France, if you have absolutely no knowledge of what anyone is going to do and you want to just guarantee that you are able to make a build, you're at maximum paranoia. I just, I'm not making any specific guesses about what my opponents are doing. I'm going to open Brest to English Channel, and I'm going to support Paris to Burgundy. That's a Yomi level zero move, because that move is guaranteed to succeed and result in my being able to capture at least one center in 1901, Spain, while covering all my home centers or preventing them from being attacked. That's I might describe that as a Yomi level zero move. It's like kind of common to see openings of this kind. Most of the openings in gunboat diplomacy that you see are this. They must be Yomi level zero moves or, or close to it because it's gunboat and you have no idea what the other player is likely to do or is thinking other than the fact that they wanted to play a game of gunboat diplomacy. That's all that you really know about them. And so these Yomi level zero openings are very common or completely dominant even at high level games. A Yomi level one move is a move set that only makes sense if you're anticipating something from your opponent that you want to counter. I'll give an example. Let's say that Germany has armies in Prussia and Silesia, and Russia has an army in Moscow, and an army in Warsaw. There is a Yomi level one move that's available to Russia, but now it seems rather obvious, but it's Moscow support hold Warsaw. When I say that a move, move is Yomi level zero or Yomi level one, is not based on how good the move is or how predictable the move is, but rather the thinking that underpins the move. So Russia support, having Moscow support hold Warsaw, that move is only a good move or it only makes sense if Russia is anticipating a German attack on Warsaw with support. Because if Russia anticipates Germany doing literally anything else, there's probably something better Russia could do with Warsaw and Moscow. And, you know, just you know, somewhere around the board. So that makes it a Yomi level one move. It is a counter move to an anticipated German attack. There is one higher level, at least, that sometimes exists. It doesn't exist in every possible game state, but it exists in most of them. And I'm going to call this Yomi level two. 
A Yomi level 2 move is a move that only makes sense if you're anticipating an opponent executing a Yomi level 1 move and you want to counter it. So in previous masterclasses, other speakers have talked about the importance of being willing to make crazy moves or, or wild guesses and things like that. Those moves are, I, I bet you, most of the time are Yomi level 2 moves. What I'm describing here is Yomi level 2. And I'm just giving a theoretical structure for how to say, how to describe a move as like really crazy. Because a Yomi level 2 move looks bonkers. If you were playing on online and you're like looking at the order preview or something, because the orders themselves only make sense and anticipate it's a counter to a counter that you're thinking your opponent will do. And most of the time, I would, I'll go as far as to say um, virtually all of the time, a Yomi level 2 moveset is countered by a Yomi level 0 moveset. Just a player doing the basic moves that require no deep thought or countering or anticipation of what the opponents do. Just straightforward moves that advance them towards their goals will beat the Yomi level 2 move. I'll say this in passing. Yomi level 2 moves are are very nerve-wracking to choose because uh, if you're wrong, your position can end up really messed up and uh, you also look like a moron. But... That is something that's just in your head or in somebody's head that, that move, those moves look dumb. I'm experienced enough in diplomacy to recognize a Yomi level 2 move when I see him. And I don't go, oh, that was a bad move. I think, oh, that was the wrong call. That was the wrong guess. But that was a player who understood that such a move set was possible or that it was viable. It might be worth doing. And many diplomacy players essentially never ever execute Yomi level 2 moves. They'll play Yomi level 0 and they'll play Yomi level 1, but they just will never do Yomi level 2. And if I have a read on my, this opponent, like my rival, okay, I, I've never seen this guy do Yomi level 2, doesn't seem to think like that, doesn't seem psychologically capable of making it. So that means I can probably crush this player with Yomi level 1 moves because they will just basically never execute Yomi level 2 and they won't be able to beat my Yomi level 1 moves. That happens often. This is a reason why I think a factor and why I am very, very good at gunboat diplomacy because I can detect tendencies like this using these techniques of thinking through how the other person thinks that the other player may not even be aware that this is possible, that like that their thought process can be broken down and analyzed to this degree and then used to predict some or all of their moves in the future. So see, when I'm talking about these Yomi levels, I'm not talking about, oh, this player has a tendency of moving English Channel to Belgium, or like, oh, this player loves support holding, or something like that. I'm not talking about specific tactical moves. I'm talking about a, a way of thought and a way of approaching the game and what I see. Is there a tendency to play Yomi level 0, Yomi level 1, Yomi level 2, or in what combination? How, how much do they play each of these things? And the reason why that can really help is that means I can see, like, let's say I'm in a game and I'm England, and uh, now in the end game, I'm dealing with the Turk for some reason. Maybe I haven't even really interacted with the Turk most of the game, but I have seen everything they've done. I have knowledge of all the moves they've ever executed, 
and perhaps I have some knowledge of why or what they were thinking. You know, it's press diplomacy, and you know, I've I've got some scuttlebutt from this. I, I have a pretty deep understanding of how this player has thought in the match so far, and I can reverse engineer how they thought of some of their moves. And so now, suddenly in Endgame, where I'm trying to win or maybe stop them from winning, my understanding of how this player thinks up movesets and how they choose their moves and guesses is incredibly valuable. And it's mission critical <laughs> what the outcome of the game is going to be decided by whether I can or can't outguess this player's moves. We may be in the end game and not even really talking anymore. Like maybe that's a waste of time other than just you know intimidating each other or something. You know, just just saying something just for the for the fun of it. Uh, but really, the, the the diplomacy aspect of the game is mostly over, and it's just all down to tactics during end game. Many players, of, I know, have like a little breakdown. They have a, they were doing so well, and now that the game isn't, there's no more talking anymore. It's just fighting. They're not really sure what to do, and uh, they can't win. They can't get over the top and get to 18 unless someone throws it to them on purpose or something. They don't know how to tactically outguess other players and take the win by force. Uh, probably because they haven't played very much gumbo diplomacy, <laughs> where you where you often have to do that, and you learn a little a little skill. Uh, for endgame. You could also learn it um, playing 1v1 variants like France versus Austria or Germany versus Italy. Uh, you can learn that little endgame guessing game skill. Where I'm going with this is, though, being able to think about how the players are approaching their terms in terms of the Yomi levels means that even as the tactical situation of the board has developed, and like we're no longer fighting over Naples, we're no longer fighting over Berlin. So you might think, like, if you're in a totally different theater of the battle or a different phase of the game, how did their tendencies and, and habits and stuff, how is that going to carry over? And the answer is that if those tendencies and habits match up to some level of abstraction that can then later be applied to different situations, you can figure out how they think. I'll go as far as to say that I've played against the same people in different games altogether. Games like Mafia, Poker, Diplomacy freaking scrabble that like <laughs> really i mean this that the person's thought process and how they make decisions and when they're willing to take risk or what they value it's possible to figure those things out and that kind of thinking carries from situation to situation so i'm saying if i can get into your head in a game of texas hold'em i can also get into your head in a game of diplomacy so if i can get into your head in a particular theater of a diplomacy battle then for sure i can get into your head in some other theater later in the game definitely because of how these methods work now once again i've talked for a for a long clip uh and i'm gonna take a breather okay this is perfect because this is the example that i logged on to this class to give and it fits exactly what you've been saying and i'm not involved it was in the broadcaster's brawl so anybody can go look on youtube and see how this happened and uh, Adam Silverman was England. David Hood was Germany. Uh, David Hood had gotten a little frisky as Germany and had a, a German-French alliance with, with Doug Moore. And Doug Moore decided, oops, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself here. So now it was an English-French alliance against Germany. Germany had two fleets. England had four fleets. Germany's fleets were in Sweden and Denmark. England's fleets were in St. Petersburg, Norway, Edinburgh, having just been built, and North Sea. It was a fall turn. And Adam Silverman being, apparently, uh, I would judge from this, a very conservative, almost plotting player, decided to do sort of the obvious thing. And I'm just going to get position to get more of my fleets into the fray and then clean him out next year. 
So he moved North Sea Helglandbite, um, Norway to Skagrak, Edinburgh filling in the North Sea, St. Petersburg filling into Norway. David Hood, guessing that Adam was going to do exactly this, moved Denmark to Helglandbite, Sweden to Skagrak. Those two fleets stymied the entire English move and crippled the, the English attack. If England had said, you know what, I'm just going to take a stab at these centers and see if he doesn't cover them, and gone Norway to Sweden, North Sea to Denmark, he would have taken both centers and totally destroyed Germany. I really appreciate the story. It is, you're absolutely right. This is the moment in the conversation when it is most applicable. Yeah, I thought that was just, that was just like a perfect example of guessing the opponent's t tendencies and completely outguessing them. That's right. In this example, we see that Germany defended himself against four attacking pieces using just two by precisely anticipating exactly how his English opponent would move his pieces. That's a very satisfying story. I have an idea for trying to illustrate how to think about the Yomi levels a little more clearly. I'm going to go back to my example of a German attack on Russia. Let's say that the German player, they have these armies in Silesia and Prussia, and maybe another army in Berlin. That is not doing anything in particular. It very well could be used uh, to fight Russia. If you are Germany, your Yomi level zero move in this situation is something like... Uh, Silesia, support Prussia to Warsaw, and maybe backfill Prussia with Berlin. Something like that. Uh, because that's the move that it advances your goal and can only be stopped by your opponent anticipating and stopping the move, which in this case would be Russia, support, hold Warsaw with Moscow. If you think that Russia is going to do anything other than Moscow, support, hold Warsaw, this move is the right move. And uh, a lot of players will even just execute that move and hope for the best because that's just how they think. Like, I'm just going to try to make my attack and see what happens. The Russian player having this Yomi level 1 counter of Moscow support hold Warsaw creates a possibility of a Yomi level 2 move for the German player. Can anybody participating articulate what they think the German player's Yomi level 2 counter might be here. So you said there was a unit that could backfill in Berlin. So if none of the Russian units are moving, the, the level two move would be to move uh, Prussia to Livonia and, and backfill with Berlin to, to Prussia. But you've now got three on Warsaw. That's a hundred percent right. I really, I'm really glad you were able to uh, articulate it. I, I think I did explain the concept clearly then. <laughs> That's right. The German player has this Yomi level 2 move available of repositioning because if they think the Russian's not going to move, then they could just bring more units to the front and set up for a future attack in which they'll probably take Warsaw and then and maybe Moscow as well. So this means that the Russian player has has some other viable moves besides just support hold Warsaw or what I might call a Yomi level 2 move trying to counter a counter move. It may be obvious, but I would just like to hear somebody else say it. What what also is reasonable for the Russian to play here? 
if you believe Germany is going to Livonia, then then you bounce them out of Livonia. That's right. So the Russian player could move Warsaw or Moscow or, or both uh, to Livonia and block that German move. And so since this Yomi level 2 move, this Russian counter-counter is reasonable for the Russian to play, that means even against the most sophisticated player, or possibly even it's a little more likely to work against a sophisticated player, the German player could just make the Yomi level 0 supported attack on Warsaw, anticipating the Russian is going to try to cover Livonia. That's totally reasonable. Russia's Yomi level 2 move here is countered by simply making a straightforward attack on Warsaw, the Yomi level 0 move. Where this uh, theoretical structure could help you is let's say you're neither Germany nor Russia. You're just some other player like Italy or England or France or something. You're just observing this. You're just observing the confrontation between Germany and Russia. Seeing either player try to make a Yomi level 2 move, whether it works or doesn't work, but just seeing them do that at all, attempting it, tells you a huge amount of information about how that player thinks about diplomacy and what they're willing to do with their move sets. So even though you might later be in a situation in which, okay, you're France and you're fighting Germany and it's like some kind of fleet battle or whatever, you know, when Germany was fighting Russia, Germany was doing a lot of tricky moves. You could then anticipate Germany taking these weird, high-risk, counter-counter, Yomi level 2 moves. You could anticipate that, that the Germans capable, and perhaps increase how much you want to play your Yomi level 0 moves. Or, getting even deeper into the psychology of the game, if the German player seems to be attempting to counter their reads of other players, you're like, okay, the German player doesn't just make moves that are like really obvious or optimized. They're placing big bets on their reads of other players. That means if I feed misleading information to the German about my tendencies, that could pay off later. So I might do something like play Yomi level zero moves over and over again, like as much as possible. I guess I'm assuming this is a match where we're anonymous and they don't just know it's me. For the sake of the point, that if I think that the German player is trying to get reads on the other players and counter them, I can give them false reads by deliberately manufacturing tendencies that aren't my normal tendencies, not when we're fighting, just when I'm playing elsewhere in the match, anticipating that the German player is going to use this information. Then later, when we have a conflict, the German player will feel like they're fighting an entirely different player than the one that they thought they knew. Because now I am deploying a different way of fighting, a different capability or a different style that I withheld earlier in the match, anticipating that I could later use this to overcome the German. Does that make sense? I know that's kind of abstract. Yeah, it makes sense to me that, that if it's anonymous, you are keeping a rubric of what types of tendencies people have. And I assume you keep a, a larger collection of data for games that aren't anonymous that if you know that john doe constantly does yomi level two then you start out the game knowing that he is always trying to counter your counter moves that's right if you if you know somebody on a personal level it's somebody you've played with many times before or at least they have a reputation or maybe you can observe how they've played in games in the past then you have an even greater wealth of information about their tendencies 
their habits, um, and how they think things through. It's always valuable to be amassing that information about the player. And how, how, how can I say this? Um, what I think is the real trick is to have a little mental model of this other person that lives in your mind, a little version of them that you don't have to understand the person in their totality. You just have to understand how they go about diplomacy and think through how this little person, this, this, this imaginary person, how they would make decisions and how they think. And I think this is critical to outguessing players in diplomacy. So I, I've taught a lot of people how to play diplomacy in my time at this point, quite a lot. And so I have some insight on the common, I guess, hang-ups or uh, like psychological barriers or whatever you want to call it, you know, that, 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 that holds people back. they got things that hold them back. And one of these common things that's self-limiting is that the players model their opponents on themselves. And so well, I'm, I'm England and I'm trying to fight Russia, and, and so I say... Well, if I were Russia, this is what I would do in this situation. So that's probably what Russia is going to do, and I'll try to I'll try to counter that. And that's I mean that's better than nothing. It's better than being just completely oblivious. However, that's not very good. This is the master class, right? So um, what you should be thinking is not what would I be doing if I were Russia, but what is Russia doing as Russia? What would Russia be doing if they were Russia? What would I be doing if I were them? If I were that person? Not if I had that position as Russia, but if I were that human being, what would I be thinking? And this is like an exercise in, in like acting or role playing or, or what you, what you want to call it. You could probably do this with a character or something like, hey, you know, here's the situation I'm in. But like, what would, you know, Abraham Lincoln do? What would Abraham Lincoln do in this situation? People make statements like that, right? Like, what would Jesus do? That kind of thing. You can think through, right, what another person would think about the situation. This person who isn't you, but you have some knowledge about how they think, and you can imagine how they would think through the situation. That's what you should be doing in your diplomacy game when you're trying to outguess the other player. Not thinking, what would I do in their shoes? What would I do if I were them? I think one of the, the scariest moves trying to anticipate is the brace. When somebody knows exactly what you're going to do, and so the only move that can defend against that is, is the supported attack on the same place. And if you know they're going to do the brace, then you don't do it at all. And then they walk foolishly out of the supply center that they were defending. Okay. Is the term brace known among the community? That's, um, that's not a term that I've heard very often. I, I think it would help if you talk a little more about it. Okay. Sometimes it's also called the pull through. Say, for example, you have two units on north and you intend to take north and there's only one unit in north and nothing to support it so you think you've got it it's guaranteed and so you're going to attack north from belgium supported by denmark the opponent knowing that you're going to attack from belgium then supports north to belgium from picardy so you've got a standoff with two units each supported to the other places destination that's sometimes called a brace or a pull through because it's two versus two a strength of two attacking north and a strength of two attacking belgium so because the the person defending north knew you were going to attack from belgium they they set up a brace 
and uh, prevented you from taking north when you thought it was guaranteed. Okay, and uh, you're raising this tactical example as a a time when a player, uh, if I understand what you're saying right, may be psychologically self-limited, that it, it, the move seems too foolish if it doesn't work as intended, so maybe I, I can't bring myself to make it? Yeah. Sometimes you're, you're basically walking out of a defended territory when you do this. In order to, to pull it off, you have to basically be surrendering north, and, and it looks often foolish when someone says, well, why did he walk out of north like that? Uh, because you were anticipating a brace that never came. So I think that that's, that's totally germane to this discussion, and uh, we can elaborate on that a little bit, which is uh, that there are many general uh, psychological tendencies or what, what are sometimes called cognitive bias that applies to people in general. These are limitations of thinking that are very common. And so um, having knowledge of the cognitive biases that are applicable to diplomacy can be very advantageous to you because then when you see players exercising them, exercising might be the wrong word, you see players um, beholden to these biases, you'll notice it. You'll notice it because you're like, ah, that's that thing, that pe- that mistake that people commonly make. So an example of a cognitive bias is something like um, like risk aversion where for some reason – a person values the pain of losses uh, far more uh, than uh, the joy of gains. And so this causes them to overly devalue risky moves in, in diplomacy. That's a, I mean, that's, a, that's a psychological bias that can apply to anything, right? Like finance, work, <laughs> life, uh, but, it, but it has relevance to, to diplomacy. Another one that I think is relevant to diplomacy is this is I don't, I don't really know what the term is in terms of the cognitive bias, so I'm going to describe it in a, in a narrative sense. Some some people are playing diplomacy with a like a like a conscience or something in their head. They're hearing the voices of other people or they're talking to themselves this way, where they want to be able to defend and rationalize what they did. That it's more important to them that they look like a good player than that they be a good player. And, of course, no one would ever admit to this. No one would ever consciously say, I'm all about just looking like a good player and don't really care whether I win or not. No one would ever say that. But that is a psychological hang-up that's going on in their heads. That's what I'm trying to say. And this is something that can cause a player to really devalue risky moves or or especially Yomi Level 2 moves that look bad they superficially appear to be blunders if they don't work but are potentially very good moves are the kind of moves you you probably need to make if you want to win every so often you got to make some some risky moves here and there and uh, they're unwilling to do this because when they make moves like that and it fails they they feel they feel humiliated or they they feel as though they're a bad player or something like that some 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 narrative is getting created in their mind and so in anticipation of this humiliation or this narrative, they don't make the moves at all. They don't do it. I'll even make like a little more concrete. In game theory, there is a term of art of optimal moves that applies to uh, games with a mixed strategy like diplomacy. So diplomacy falls into this – when I say a mixed strategy, it means that there's just, there's just no one way to play that always works. Just like a fighting game or a real-time strategy game, 
or rock, paper, scissors or anything else. There's just like the, the, the what is the best move is contextual to what your opponent does. There's not a mathematically determined best move. So like if I play rock, paper, scissors and I just always play rock, that's a terrifically bad strategy. It's incredibly exploitable because if you just play paper, you'll win every time and I'll never win. So in rock, paper, scissors, the optimal strategy is a mixed strategy where you play rock, paper, and scissors an equal amount of time and you do that randomly so that you can't be predicted. And that's what an optimal strategy is in rock, paper, scissors. However, optimal does not mean the one that wins the most. It means the one that loses the least. And that might be counterintuitive to some people or sound like I'm saying the same thing, but I, I can explain. Let's say we go to the Rock, Paper, Scissors tournament. All right, here I am, brother board. Here I am at the Rock, Paper, Scissors tournament. Okay, you know, who's my first opponent? Hey, I'm Rocky Balboa, and I just, I play rock. I play rock every time. That's why they call me Rocky. Always play rock. Rock's the best. Rock always wins. And uh, in fact, Rocky uh, just does play rock invariably every time without exception. If I play my optimal strategy of equally playing rock, paper, and scissors, I will win exactly one-third of the time against Rocky Balboa here. Whereas if I played 100% paper, I would 100% win. And so the winningest strategy against Rocky is to play all paper, even though the optimal strategy is to play rock, paper, and scissors equally. In diplomacy, there are optimal moves that you can figure out on many turns. And by optimal, again, I mean the move that loses the least, that cannot be exploited by a player guessing you. So this would be something like, I'll go as far as to say a lot of Yomi level zero moves, maybe all of them. I'm not, I'm not a math person. Math isn't my background. So I hope that some of my math uh, friends that are listening to this, they don't cringe with my definitions here. I'm trying my best that I think Yomi level zero moves and optimal moves are often one and the same. I'm not 100% sure if, if they're exactly congruent. But let's say we get into an endgame situation in which there's exactly one guess left. And the, the German player who's trying to solo win can support hold Munich or they can support hold Berlin. And if they guess right, they're going to reach 18 and win. And if they guess wrong, they're going to reach 17 and then lose either Munich or Berlin and get stalemated. Or something like that. Let's, maybe that's not exactly how it works, but like just, just suppose for the sake of the argument. So they have one guess. And this would be a true 50-50 guess because in this situation, the two centers that Germany can defend have equal value because all the only role they serve is do I get to 18 or do I not? And the game ends the next turn, either in a solo win or stalemate line. It's a true 50-50 guess. Does not, does not matter. It's totally arbitrary. Uh, which one? And if I am the player who, let's say this, so I, I, I'm the German player in this situation, and I want to make sure that I at least have a 50% chance of solo winning. I want to say that I have at least a 50% chance of solo winning here. Maybe the time comes for me to flip a coin, like literally flip a coin to make my decision because that guarantees that I can't be predicted by the other player. But let's say that my opponent is someone who I think I have a read on. They're not quite Rocky Balboa in this situation, but something like it. 
And I think that, you know, my opponent has a greater than 50% chance of going for Berlin in this situation. If I'm right about that, then I should either, you know, to keep things simple, I might just play Berlin to support hold Berlin and see how that goes. Or maybe even assign some kind of odds of them guessing Berlin. You know, I think there's a 75% chance of them guessing Berlin. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip two coins. And only if they're both tails will I support hold Munich or something, something convoluted like that. I, I'm telling you just for the record, in practice, I never, ever do this. I have never done this even once in my entire life, in my entire career of playing diplomacy. I've never flipped a coin, rolled a die, or used a random number generator. I would just make a read and go for it. But I'm saying it's not, it's not foolish. Uh, in this situation uh, to, to maybe try to randomize your guess. The thing is, if the opposing players, the opposing player that's trying to stop me from getting this win, has just flipped a coin to make their decision, they're playing optimally, there's no exploit here, it does not matter what my choice was as Germany. I could choose randomly. I could make a choice based on some kind of logic, whatever, because by definition, my opponent has made an unexploitable choice. There's, there's nothing I can do to increase my chances of winning. So if I think my opponent has made random moves, truly random moves, then I don't need to randomize my own moves. That doesn't add any value. It doesn't make any sense. I can just guess whatever I want. It doesn't matter. And if my opponent is not randomizing, they're actually thinking about it and making a choice as to which one they're going to play, they're really thinking about it, then that's a thought process that can be understood, predicted, and exploited. So the only time that it advantages you to try to play randomly, truly randomly, with an optimal, non-exploitable strategy in this endgame situation is if you think the other player has such a read on you that if you try to think it through you'll lose, or you're likely to lose, in which case you'd randomize just to get your way through the situation. Personally, just for the matter of, uh, I don't know what you call it, my self-esteem, even if the other player, <laughs> I felt that they really were in my head, I would still do my best to make a guess rather than choosing something randomized and stand or fall on my own merits as a player, as my, on my own Yomi skill is I guess what I'm trying to say. And uh, hopefully learn a lesson or something if, I, if my guess was wrong. So b backing up a little bit to the idea of playing optimally, there are many players who choose optimal moves as much as possible, even from turn one, or as close to optimal as they're able to figure out. That is to say, they try to choose moves that are the least exploitable by another player, that it's really hard to outguess them. So like in the example I gave very early of when I defined Yomi level zero, I said, hey, there's a French opening where you can support Paris to Burgundy and move rest to English Channel. And this guarantees that you'll make a capture at the end of 1901. There's like a certain logic to playing that way. I'm not saying this is a bad opening per se. But if a player makes that opening and continues to play like that, turn after turn, that they're choosing the moves that are the most difficult for the other players to exploit or counter. I probably have a pretty good read on how this player plays. They choose the moves that lose the least if they're wrong. Or like them being wrong is really hard um, to see how they could be wrong. And those are players who, uh, in my opinion or in my experience, they do real well. Uh, in pickup games. They do real well in family games. 
They might even come to think of diplomacy as a chess-like game. That's very false, but they'll come to think of diplomacy as a chess-like game where you just have to figure out the best moves. They beat their friends, they win in pickup games, and then they get crushed in high-level games where players understand that diplomacy's got a lot more going on than that. And uh, these very optimal moves, although they're, they're hard to exploit, there are ways around it or there are opportunities that they're giving up, right? So like if I, again, if I'm going up against Rocky Balboa and Rock, Paper, Scissors and I play optimally, that's a moronic strategy. That's incredibly foolish to play the optimal strategy against Rocky Balboa. And now what I'm here to tell you is that in diplomacy, everybody's Rocky Balboa by degrees. Nobody is playing perfectly. Nobody is playing optimally every turn without exception. There's all kinds of judgments that they're making about what centers are valuable and when. Earlier in this conversation, I was talking about that there's just this infinite array of stuff that you could be using to take into account and making your decisions about where you're supposed to go or where your interests lie or how valuable a certain center is. And that that is not possible to entirely reduce to simple mathematical numbers and come up with a truly, optim- a truly optimal way to play diplomacy doesn't really exist because of the psychological and political aspect of the game, at least for the bulk of the game. And maybe during the bitter end game, there is optimal stuff that really matters. But I, that's, that's, that's a tiny part of the game. The bulk of the game isn't like that. Where I'm going with this is if the players are deviating from – not deviating. It implies that there's a standard. There's just some – there's always something going on in their head. There's some thought process they're using. Every last player has to make decisions about what they consider to be important and valuable, and that is not just defined by the rules of the game per se. It depends on how the game plays out and what people are thinking, and they're also making like errors of judgment that they're just wrong. They, I don't know. For some reason, this player thinks Norway is really important, and, it, and it's just not in this situation and understanding and perceiving all that means you can understand what is going wrong or at least different in their thought process and then you understand okay this guy isn't rocky balboa where he just plays rock every time without exception but he is playing rock 45 percent of the time for some reason for whatever reason this guy is playing rock 45 percent of the time so now that i perceive this i need to increase the amount that i'm playing paper by quite a bit this is where the yomi levels come in because you can think of yomi level zero one and two as very similar to rock paper and scissors and if you see somebody who's just they're playing like 90 percent yomi level zero and 10 percent yomi level one you say okay this guy is rocky he's playing mostly rock and there's a little bit of scissors here and never ever paper So that means that since he's never playing paper, if I play rock a little more often, that's a lot more likely to succeed against this player. And once again, I've talked for a pretty long clip, and I I don't know. If you've got something else to say, you're free to talk. I I appreciate your listening to me speak so long. One thing I've wondered uh, about is my own tendencies, and I've wondered if it would be valuable for me to find somebody to go through my games with and point out some of my own biases that are, are hurting my own game. Oh, I think that's incredibly valuable. I think that's a great way to get good at diplomacy. That's definitely a factor, like a way that I got good over the years was finding fellow players who were willing to take the time to do this, to help me review games and find out my mistakes. I reached a point in my career, I guess you might call it, as a diplomacy educator. I personally don't have as much time for doing that with people individually as I as I once 
used to, since I'm spending a lot of time, you know, writing articles and creating content like this, hey, but I still do it from time to time. And it seems like the people think that it, that it helps them. I think it helped me back in the day. Actually, I don't even have to go that far back in time. I'll give you a really concrete example. A couple years back, I was playing a little more France versus Austria. And I'll tell you what, I just somehow had it in my head. I don't know why that Munich could be stalemated from the south without Berlin. This is false. It's absolutely false. Um, it's, Munich is highly defensible from the south, even without Berlin, but it cannot actually be put behind a stalemate line. Munich, there's just not enough spaces to do it. So I was playing France versus Austria with someone, and I was playing in such a way that implied that I thought that Munich was permanently defensible as Austria. And the other player says, why are you doing that? Or that doesn't really make sense. And I, I don't know, the, the details aren't important. But we, we had this conversation, which caused me to realize that I had way overvalued Munich uh, on this <laughs> mistaken, mistaken assumption that I could stalemate it if I needed to enforce a draw or something. And that is just not true. That was a pretty important uh, revelation to me. And subsequently, I got a lot better at France versus Austria for one and it changed how I thought about diplomacy in general. It changed the way that I valued Munich upon this realization. And I don't think I would have figured that out by myself. Someone had to point out to me that what I was saying didn't make any sense. I don't really have any uh, concrete questions. But I just want to say thanks for this topic. I think it's really important. Uh, I'm, I've said a million times, even to an ally, this is, you know, looking at somebody else's position. This is what I would do. Uh, let's, let's go based on that. So it's a very good point that I think you've really uh, hammered home here about really needing to try to um, think about the player playing against. The, the only uh, question I guess I would ask is, where do you find a game of France versus Austria? I've never uh, seen a forum for these things. Oh, it's pretty well played on uh, Web Diplomacy and V Diplomacy. It might be on some other websites, but those are the two that come to my mind. It's played uh, extended deadline format? Tell me what you mean by extended deadline format. It's played like online diplomacy, like a move every day or every few hours. It's not played in a face-to-face -face style where you're sitting down and playing at once. Oh, uh, well, I, I don't know how easy it is to find those games, but usually, yes, it is played in the extended deadline format. But I will tell you that literally yesterday I did a live stream on YouTube with the Diplomacy Games podcast in which we played France v. Austria against each other live and finished the whole game in an hour, and it's now recorded and it's up on YouTube. Well, my end is on YouTube, and they're going to publish it as a podcast so we like narrated what the moves were and stuff so it is possible you know i i get games there from time to time that are played live i would happily play live and even uh live stream it and record it and stuff if you're interested in france versus austria because i think it's a i think it's a really underrated game i don't think it's like it counts as diplomacy since there's no diplomacy in it <laughs> at all but i think it's a really fun game because it's got this guessing component that like it's it's all about the yomi uh, well, actually, that's maybe a little exaggeration. Um, you still have to make some good moves <laughs> or, you, or you can't win. Uh, but if you know what the good moves are, then it comes down to the Yomi, and I think that's a lot of fun. Right, and I think it, it probably could help people practice uh, endgame situations, you know, as opposed to only getting to practice those when you've made it to a powerful position in the endgame. Oh, that's what I 100% I agree, and that's often how I uh, persuade folks to play France versus Austria against me who are otherwise like, oh, I'm not that interested. And I think like, okay, when you play like classic diplomacy, by and large, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just like throwing a number out there, but let's say about 50% of the time the game ends in a draw. 
okay, and assuming that you have a one in seven chance of winning, maybe that's not realistic, but like, hey, you have a one in seven chance of winning, but 50% of the time the game ends in a draw, that means you're going to win something like 7% of the time. <laughs> a very, very small number of matches are going to result in you getting to an endgame situation where you can win. And so what can be really disappointing about that is, is you play through all the early game, you, nobody attacked you, you did it right, you backstabbed your ally at the right moment, and now you're in this endgame situation in which your knowledge of the diplomacy board and the precise tactics of how to move things around and make guesses, the whole game's going to come down to that, and it didn't matter up until that point. Whereas, if you had played, you know, a dozen matches of France versus Austria or Germany versus Italy, any other, you know, these, these 1v1 variants that are still on the classic diplomacy board... You know, ah, I need to have a unit here, I need to have this thing here, or this is what's what's the critical position from getting that experience. Little things like, you know, you got to know that like Galicia, holding Galicia is necessary to holding Sevastopol from the north. That's something that like most people don't know and uh, you could blow it one way or the other during endgame in classic diplomacy. Whereas if you had played Germany versus Italy, a few times you learn that forwards and backwards you can do it in your sleep i think that's what you're talking about right ben yeah that's right thanks thank you for your time brother board i appreciate it as always all right i think we'll call this one done you've been listening to masterclass to participate in future masterclass sessions please join the Virtual World Diplomacy Community's Discord server by following the link in the episode description. And remember to subscribe to the Diplomacy Dojo podcast for Brotherboard's Dojo, as well as future Masterclass recordings. Thanks to Frederick Larden for the music Robot is Chilling, used here in our intro and outro. <laughs>